0: Well, good morning again. As I mentioned in the welcome, we're going to finish up the book of Proverbs this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 31. And I get to teach the wife of noble character what I had feared the most has come upon me. As the verse says, as many of you know, Barb Wilson in our church family. She's been teaching a class called Wife of Noble Character for 32 years. It's a 25-week class. This is the workbook, and it's rather intimidating to have to teach through this chapter this morning. But to kind of give you an idea of how I feel, let me me tell you a little story. My... uh, Well, that's our series, Foolproof God's Wisdom in Proverbs. We'll finish it, and then we'll be into 1 Peter in the New Testament starting next week. But uh, my former pastor, Skip Heitzig, one week every year, he would go to teach at The Cove, which is the Billy Graham Training and Conference Center in Asheville, North Carolina. And one year, he was asked to teach on evangelism and as he was getting ready and the class was about to start, an elderly man walked down the aisle and came and sat right down in the front row center, opened up his Bible and his notebook and prepared to take notes. That man was Billy Graham. And so here's my pastor having to teach evangelism to Billy Graham. (laughs) Well, if that gives you a little sense of how I feel this morning. I have to teach wife of noble character, so I feel a little bit inadequate, but I'm gonna certainly do my best with this. And uh, the message title this morning is True Beauty, and we'll cover all of chapter 20, of, of chapter 31, and it actually has two parts. First of all, we'll look at the character of a godly king in verses one through nine, and then we'll go to the character of a godly wife in verses 10 through 31. So these two sections are actually two poems, as we're going to see in a moment. And so we'll start with the character of a godly king. Now, this first poem is only nine verses. So let's just read through it first, and then we'll work through it in more detail. So beginning at verse 1. The sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees, and deprave all of the oppressed of their rights. Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So verse 1 begins with the words, the sayings of King Lemuel. And just like Agar who penned uh, Proverbs 30 that we went through last week, we really don't know much about King Lemuel other than what we see right here in this chapter. Now, some Jewish tradition holds that Lemuel was actually a pen name for King Solomon and that the mother who's teaching him this is Bathsheba. Well, I don't think that's the case. Here's why. If you look down at verse 2, it says, O son, son of my womb, son of my vows. Well, we know that Solomon uh, was the result of adultery, the adultery of King David with Bathsheba. And so there were no marital vows there. This implies that there were either vows made to the father or vows made to the Lord, like with Hannah, and that this was this child was then the result of that. That wasn't a case with with uh, Solomon, so I don't think this is speaking of King Solomon, probably King Lemuel was a foreign king who had a Jewish mother who taught him about the God of Israel. And so regardless of his background, um, we know that Lemuel realized that his words were prophetic. They were a message given by God, just as Eger knew that in chapter 30. You see it there where he says an oracle. And so, in God felt it right to include these words in the canon of Scripture. These are divinely inspired. And so, these are words spoken by his mother to her son, the king. And verse 2 says, O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. Now, this is not referring to the virtuous pursuit of a maiden like we saw in chapter 30 last time. This is quite different. This is speaking of an unhealthy obsession with romance and sex. And it's one that preoccupies a person and, in fact, consumes them and ultimately defiles them. And there's no greater example in Scripture of this than King Solomon himself. God had blessed Solomon with this tremendous wisdom. He penned most of the Proverbs in, the, in, this, in this book. And God blessed him with riches like no other king. And he started out really well. But then he began to stray from the Lord. He began to develop a love for foreign women in direct opposition to God's command and to his own counsel. And so let me read you just a little bit from 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edenites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Here we go. It brought down the king of Israel, Solomon. Solomon was never satisfied. He wasn't satisfied with his wife. And so he thought, I'll take a second wife. Guess what? It didn't satisfy him. So a third, a fifth, maybe ten would do it. No, no. 50, 100, 200, 700 wives, guys, and 300 concubines on top of that. A thousand women. Was he satisfied? No, he still was not satisfied. Can you imagine trying to keep that many women happy? I mean, he went, they had these foreign gods, and so to appeased them, he began building places of worship for each of their foreign gods, even the detestable gods like Kimash. And the Lord judged him for that. They turned his heart away from the one true God toward these pagan gods that weren't gods at all. And so it brought about his downfall and eventually the split of the kingdom. Do not spend your strength on women, it says. And this instruction is given to Lemuel, but it was recorded for you and me. And the same principle applies to us. If it were better for a man to have two wives, don't you think that the God of all goodness would say, go for it, it's good for you, I endorse it. Or if it were better for a wife to have two husbands, wouldn't God say, do do it, this is good, it's right. Or if it were better for you to have sex outside of marriage, Wouldn't the God of all goodness, the God who created sex, who made it pleasurable and desirable, wouldn't he say, yes and amen, go? But he doesn't. He doesn't because it's not better for us. It's destructive. And so here's the point. Whenever we think that something outside of God's instruction will be better for us, Well, that's our sin nature. That's our sinfulness skewing our thoughts and our feelings. Whenever we go outside of God's will, it will never work out well for us. It just won't, regardless of what we might think and what we might feel. The noetic effect of sin, it taints even our thinking. We don't see and think and feel rightly. So if we want the absolute best for ourselves, you want the absolute best for yourself? I want it for me. And we need to follow God's instruction. So Samuel's mother, she tells him about this, and then she continues in verse 4. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer. Let's say, drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Well, throughout the Bible, the prohibition is not against drinking, but against drunkenness. Drunkenness impairs judgment. It corrupts values. It distorts priorities. It hampers memory. And then all of a sudden, the things that should be important to us, they no longer are. And so, today though, it's, it's sad, but many view drinking and drunkenness almost like a sport. It's something where they acquire the skill in high school And maybe they refine it in college where they're spurred on by peers and a lack of accountability. But then it becomes an addiction. And it often carries over with them into their professional life, into their family life with great and grave consequences. Researchers estimate that each year, 1,825 college students between the ages of 18 and 24 die from alcohol-related injuries. 696,000 students are assaulted by another student who's been drinking every year. 97,000 students experience sexual assault or rape for the same reason. One in four students report academic consequences from drinking. See, it begins and then it continues on in our life. It gets hold of us like most sin does and it takes us captive, it takes us hostage, and it has grave consequences. Even even now, we see news articles like this one. Delta pilot charged with attempting to fly while intoxicated. How would you like to be on that plane? Or, this is a recent one in the Midwest, NTSB said the engineer in the 2019 CSX, CSX collision in Ohio that he was intoxicated. He missed the, the, the warning signs, the lights, and it resulted in a, in a disastrous collision. Now, everyone would agree, being intoxicated and flying an airplane or, or conducting a train would be wrong, right? Well, Proverbs 31 says, being intoxicated while ruling a nation is also wrong. It doesn't matter if it's just at night. It impairs judgment. It, it corrupts morals. If that's true for a pilot, for a conductor, for a ruler, why would that not be true for a father, or a husband, or a student, or a mother, or anyone else for that matter? When is it ever to our advantage to have impaired judgment, or corrupted morals? It's not. It's not. That's why we saw back in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever, whoever is led astray by them is not wise. So again, drinking is not forbidden, but drunkenness is. And God calls us throughout his scripture to be self controlled and sober minded. I put some verses there as reference. We see that over and over. It says in contrast in verse 6, it says, Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So this is talking about beer or wine as a sedative for somebody who is uh, about to be executed for a crime. Or somebody who has a terminal illness and is suffering great pain. These are people who have nothing to live for at all. And that stands in contrast to a king or a father or a student who has great responsibility and everything to live for. So God's prohibition is against drunkenness here. And then verse 8, his mother continues, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. This this final exhortation from his mother is one of compassion. He's saying you need to have compassion on those who cannot defend themselves. Now remember, she's speaking to her son, who is a king. And as king, he has great power and authority. And power and authority are enablers. They enable people to do whatever it is that they desire to do. If you have enough power and authority, you can do it. You can pull it off. For instance, if you have the right power and authority, you can use it to build a home for orphaned children. Or you can use it to exploit those who are disadvantaged. You can do great good and you can do great evil with your power and authority. You have a choice. But the other thing that we have to realize is that power and authority have a way of appealing to our sin nature. I wish it weren't true, but it is. You know the saying, power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, it's true. Think about some more headlines with powerful people in Hollywood, in the media, in government, in business. People like Harvey Weinstein, Hollywood producer, Stephen Wynn, the casino magnate, Matt Lauer, a news anchor, Charlie Rose, a television host, Kevin Spacey, an actor, Larry Nasser, the doctor for the USA Gymnastics team. All of these people used their power and authority to abuse others. They used it for great evil. God says you're not to do that. You're not to use your power and authority for evil. Now, you might not be a, you know, a ruler, a governor, a king, You might not be a a well-known celebrity or even a team doctor, but you still have an element of power and authority. And just like with these people, you can use it for great good or you can use it for great evil. God, it's not enough that we just refrain from doing evil with the power and authority that we have. God exhorts us to use it to do good. For instance, if you have a medical background, You could help an elderly person wade through the mountains of paperwork associated with an illness they might be struggling with, or help that person to make medical decisions. If you have an IT background, you could help a struggling family set up a computer in their home or a network. You could help them launch a a, a website for their new business. There's lots of ways you can use the the resources, the power and authority that you have. If you're a teacher, you could help a disadvantaged student at school or in your neighborhood. You could tutor them on the side. So the things God's given us, the influence, the power, the authority, we can use for great good or great evil. And God exhorts us to use it for good. So these are the words that King Lemuel's mother gives to him its instructions on the godly character of a king. And then also, secondly, its instruction on the godly character of a wife. Now, this this second section is also a poem, but this poem is an acrostic and an acrostic is one in which the, the first letter of each verse in this poem, there's 22 lines, and each one starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. And so you have Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and so on, A, B, C, D in Hebrew. Here's a poem, uh, an, an acrostic poem in English. It's a poem by Petra She'an, and it's called If Only. If only, the letter A, a prayer was held in our nation. Beauty was seen in more ways than one. Children who are lost could find their salvation. Death was slain and torture was done. If only, earth was awakened after years of endurance. Forgotten feelings were rekindled anew. God was man's only path and assurance. Hope was the foundation of the world we knew. So you get the idea, this ABCD. It's a mnemonic, it's a memory aid to help memorize the poem. Well, that's just what uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31 are. And there's other, there's psalms, a number of psalms that are written in the same way. So it's simply a memory aid. And you could say that this poem is laying out for us the godly character of a woman from A to Z. From beginning to end. And that's really what it is. When my uh, wife turned 50 just a few years ago, I decided to hold a birthday party with about 25 ladies from church and we held it at the all-chocolate kitchen. Well, it was a hit. (laughs) Well, all I had to do was have Chef Roby bring out tray after tray of chocolate treats and then just stand back and watch it happen. it's an amazing thing that takes place when you get 25 women together in the same room with chocolate. They begin speaking in tongues that no man can understand. <laughs> and the frequency hits a pitch that will upset dogs 3 blocks away. <laughs> it, it was it was something to behold. <laughs> but it was it was it was It went off well and I was thankful, but along with the party, I thought I could honor my wife by putting together a make-believe magazine. And I named this magazine, Proverbs 31 Life. And I put her on the cover of my magazine. And so, it had articles like, Deborah Sommerfeld, still young and faithful at 50. And an interview with Barb Wilson on being a wife of noble character. And one of my favorites, hot and holy. Yes, you can be both. (laughs) What woman wouldn't want to be on the cover of Proverbs 31 life? I mean, a P31 woman here. So I earned a lot of brownie points for that. Uh, But the truth is, no woman can live up to the standards fully live up to the standards that are laid out in this part of chapter, of chapter 31. In fact, some women find it intimidating or put off by it. They're like, how could I ever do that? Well, this chapter is a compilation. It's pretty much all of the godly characteristics that you see from the beginning of Proverbs until chapter 31 all boiled down and compacted into one biblical wonder woman. (laughs) That's what this is. No woman can fully live up to this any more than it would would be like saying a husband of noble character who can find. He prays without ceasing. He does all things without grumbling and complaining. He's anxious about nothing. He does everything in love. Men, can you do that? That's not a real husband, that's a pipe dream. None of us can fully do that. Yet, every one of those is a command of God. Pray without ceasing, do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's the right standard to aim for, but none of us can fully meet it. And so ladies, as we look at these verses, don't be discouraged by it. View them as a a noble goal and strive for them with God's strength and, and let it spur you on toward love and good deeds. Don't let it discourage you. So here we go. A wife of, verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has, has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. We'll pause there. It begins with the search for a wife of noble character. Other translations render it a virtuous wife or an excellent wife. Or it could be translated a valiant wife, one who is strong, even heroic in character that this same word is used of Joshua's army when it speaks of the mighty men of valor. They weren't wives of noble character, They they were valiant men. And so this is speaking of a valiant, courageous woman who puts on the full armor of God. And it says of this woman, who can find? It's not that she doesn't exist, but that this type of character is very, very rare which is what makes it very, very precious, even priceless. Now when we think of the search for a woman, modern day America, we think of a young man, a single man pursuing a woman. We think of courtship and dating and all those kinds of things and that's fine, but that's not what happened in, in the ancient Near East there the father or mother would find a bride and it would be more of an arranged marriage. So that's what's going on here. This is for the benefit of the family. And yet these principles still apply to us today. And I think it's still wise for a young man to seek the approval of his mother and father in the choice of a wife. There's wisdom in that. So if you ask most single men, I looked at the surveys, Most single men, what are you looking for in a wife? They'll probably tell you they're looking for a woman who has the beauty of a supermodel, the fitness of an athlete, the talent of an artist, and the fashion of a designer, and more. There's probably not a woman in the world that can meet all of those standards. And here's the thing, guys, be honest. If she did, what would she want with you? (laughs) I mean, really? This isn't realistic. But God says that the most important thing is her inner beauty. It's her godliness. Is she a woman of godly character? Not one who's perfect, but one who loves the Lord. One who's been with Jesus, as we talked about last week. One who leans on him as her source of strength. One who runs to him when she falls short one who seeks his forgiveness and his grace to cover all of her imperfections. That's a beautiful woman. In God's eyes, she's worth far more than rubies. In fact, she's priceless. So, how fitting that we come to this passage on Mother's Day, I, think it's, I don't think it's coincidence, I think it's providence. But the folks at salary.com did a story on the jobs that mothers perform, including chef, Nanny, chauffeur, tutor, housekeeper, and on and on and on. And they concluded that if you paid a mom for all of the services that she renders, the median annual salary would be one hundred and seventy-eight thousand two hundred and one dollars. Whoa. Men, you better buy mom a nice meal tonight. One one hundred and seventy-eight thousand two hundred and one dollars. She's of great value. Well, verse 11, her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. This says that she is trustworthy in the affairs of the household. And the husband has full confidence in her. He feels safe with her. And these verses use the language of business as they talk about her running the household. Do you ever think of your home that way? Like a family business? I think a lot of people think, ah, it's just our home, it's not like my business, it's just our house. Really? Just your home? That's the foundation of everything else for the family. It's vitally important. And so, here this husband has full confidence in his wife, like a trusted business partner. He knows that he can trust her with their finances. Because she always applies wisdom to the decision she makes. She always does what's in the best interest of the household. There's no need to worry about how she manages or spends money. He can trust her with, her heart, with his heart. Because she knows that she will be spiritually and, and morally faithful to him. He can trust her with confidential information. Because he knows that she'll handle it with integrity. He has confidence in that. And he can trust her for her counsel because he knows it'll be filled with godly wisdom. Husbands, do you seek counsel from your wife? Do you seek it out? Do you value it? There can be a tendency by men to not want to take advice from their wife. I think it's rooted in the idea that if I take advice from her, I'm admitting that she's somehow superior, better than me, smarter than me. Well, you know what? That's pride. That's a pride issue. And if you think like that, if we think like that, we need to confess that. The fact is, God has given you your wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. She is a good thing. And God has given her spiritual gifts, and experiences that are different than your own. And guess what? That means she's going to have a different perspective than you. That's not a bad thing. That's a blessing. Praise God. Because nobody knows you better than your wife. Your strengths, your weaknesses, the situation in the home. We would be fools to not seek out and value the counsel of our wives. You might say, yeah, but Paul, you don't know my wife. You don't no the dumb decision shes makes well she said yes to you <laughs> so don't be too hard on her right we need to place value in the counsel of our wife this man has full confidence in her she's trustworthy verse 13 she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. she's like a merchant ships bringing her food from afar She gets up while it is still dark and provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. This speaks of gathering the provisions that are needed for a family, like a merchant ship. Coming and going to Costco, Meijer, Jewel, Home Depot, providing the things that are needed for their family. And again, it uses the language of business, a merchant ship. It's not real flattering. Oh, honey, you're a merchant ship. But, but this, is, this is a role that she fulfills. And I have to say that my wife is one of the best inventory managers I have ever met. And, I, and I've met a lot of them because I used to write inventory management software and train inventory managers. She's an awesome inventory manager. When something in our home runs out, whether it's toothpaste or coffee or whatever, peanut butter, even shoelaces, she almost always has more waiting on a shelf down in the basement. My shoelaces, I had to replace them two weeks ago, black or brown. <laughs> it's like awesome to me. And, and if we're running low on something, it's on her list. Oh, that's on my Meyer list. That's on my Costco list. It's on my, my Menards list. See, she's checked it all out. She knows the best sources of supply. She's weighed the cost and the convenience and the quality of the products. I can trust her. She's going to go get something that's in the best interest of our household. I don't have to scrutinize her purchases. She's on top of it. And as a result, our household runs well. And I'm able to do my work outside the home well because she runs and manages our household well. Well, verse 16 says, she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Again, more business language here. And from these verses, you can see that this woman doesn't only work within the home, but outside the home as well. She's an entrepreneur. She has a business. But it wasn't just to get out of the house or to be her own person, or to pursue her own career. You can see from the context that her purpose was to benefit her household, her husband, and her children. That was her priority. It was always her family. She doesn't work work only within the home, but she always works for the benefit of the household. Now, You should know the Bible never says, it never requires a woman to stay at home. It does not. There's only two verses that even speak directly to a woman staying at home, if you want to consider them that way. I'll I'll read them to you. Titus 2, verses 4 and 5 talk about the older women training the younger women, quote, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. That's all it says. And then 1 Timothy 5.14 says, So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Now, you don't have to stay at home to love your husband and your children and to keep your home in order. It's not a commandment that a woman must stay at home. But the household should not be neglected for the sake of outside employment. Or even for ministry, for that matter, the household should be a top priority. I find that as a society, we no longer uphold the value of motherhood. Too many times, motherhood takes a back seat to career. Now, I know, I know there are cases where both mom and dad have to work in order for the family to survive. I get that. But a lot more times, that's not the case. Mom and dad both work so that they can enjoy that extra income, the newer, bigger house, the two new cars, the boat, the bass boat, the Sea-Doo, and all of the toys, and 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 all of the decorations that go along with that. Somehow, values have been twisted to suggest that providing newer or more material possessions to our kids is of greater value than providing full-time parenting. And so that's kind of where our society is. The result too often is a poorly managed home filled with relational strains and children who are raised according to someone else's values. And we suffer as a society, we suffer the consequences of that. Again, God doesn't command a woman to stay at home. If you make the choice to stay at home, Don't let society shame you into thinking that that's of little importance or value, that you're some kind of loser who couldn't make it out in the business world so you stay at home. No, the value of a mom is tremendous. If you choose to work outside the home, make sure that the well-being of your household remains the number one priority. That's what God says for us in his word. So verse 19. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Now, as we keep reading these verses, women, you might be a exhausted just reading about all the things this woman does. <laughs> I mean, this is a long list. Please know that this is not a list of her activities in a single 24-hour day. This is a compilation of things from her life. Oftentimes, these are things that happen in different seasons of life. There's seasons of life where we're home with our children. There's seasons of life where we have more freedom, to take care of people outside the home. There are different seasons of life, so don't be discouraged by that. But you can see in these verses that this woman is industrious. She uses her time and her talent to serve her family first, but also those outside her family. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. I love it when the women in our church gather for one of the crafting events or like the second Sunday sisters. Many of them are working on mats for the homeless, quilts for those who are in the hospital, cards for the sick, and on and on. Some of them no longer have children at home. Some of them are widows. And they're using their time and their talent to serve others outside the home. That's a picture of beauty. That's that's true beauty in my mind. I think that it's these women that should be winning a beauty pageant because that's inner beauty that's portrayed here in in Proverbs 31. Look at verse 23. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Now this is speaking of the man's success. The city gate was where all the official business of the city was transacted. It's where the news came in, right there into the city. Don't think of like a little flimsy garden gate. This was like a fortress with with multiple chambers or enclosed rooms on the side of multiple gates coming into the city. And the officials of the city would be seated within the chambers on the sides of the gate. The king would often sit in the gate. Judges, all the business happened right there. It was, like, it was like town hall. And so even today we talk about the judges' chambers or the chamber of commerce. All of this was conducted in the chambers, the enclosed rooms along the side of the gate. And so this says that her husband was respected at the city gate. It means that he was highly regarded by the city officials. And what I like about this verse Rather than describing the woman as his wife, it describes the man as her husband. Her husband. You see, her husband is respected at the city gate. It's showing this woman's connection to her husband's success. I like that. Back when uh, Pete Flaherty was a a uh, county commissioner in Pittsburgh, he and his wife Nancy were traveling to a job site, a construction site, and they were surveying the progress, and as they're standing there on the sidewalk, one of the laborers cries out, hey Nancy, do you remember me? We dated in high school. And and she kind of, oh yeah, kind of acknowledged him. And then just a a little while later, as they're riding home in the car together, Pete kind of ribs his wife Nancy, he says, good thing you didn't marry that guy. If you'd have married that guy, you'd be the wife of a construction worker. And she says, no, honey, if I would have married that guy, he'd be a county commissioner. (laughs) See? His success was connected to his wife and her work. I like that. Believe me, in my corporate career, I couldn't have done half of what I did without the support and the hard work of my wife. In ministry, I couldn't do a third of what I do without the love and support of my wife, without her managing our household well. She enables me to serve people outside the home by keeping our home running well. It's vitally important. Uh, Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with the sashes. And again, we see that she's enterprising. There's business language here. Verse 25, she's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Now, these are the true sources of her beauty. It was on the inside. She had an inner beauty in her dignity, in her wisdom, in her faithfulness. Notice the one thing that this passage doesn't talk about at all? Her physical appearance. It doesn't say a thing about it. It says she's wearing a, a nice dress. It's okay to dress nicely for your husband, but not provocatively when you're out in, in, in town. But it doesn't say anything about her physical appearance. If this is the number one thing that men today look for is the physical appearance. Now again, there's nothing wrong With beauty. But if that's the basis for your relationship, if that's the primary thing that you're attracted to, guys, you're in for a big disappointment. Just look down at verse 30. Look what it says. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Outward beauty is fleeting. It fades away. I mentioned a couple months ago the movie Top Gun. I liked the movie Top Gun as a pilot, you know. And, and, and many in the congregation, to my surprise, also liked that movie. Well, remember Charlie, the civilian contractor? You don't salute her, she's a civilian. Charlie, played by Kelly McGillis. Well, that was 35 years ago. Here's a more recent picture. That's Charlie take my breath away. Da, 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 it kind of did take my breath away. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to reinforce what scripture says here, that beauty is fleeting. It is. It fades away. And if that's the only source of our attraction is outward beauty, we're in for a great disappointment. Now, if, if Kelly McGillis were my grandma, it'd be kind of weird, but if she were my grandma, I would still see so much beauty in her. I know I would see so much beauty in her, an inner beauty. And not only that, I found that the center picture was taken as she was leaving her church. Praise God for that. Because Scripture says right in this verse, in verse 30, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Praise God. So the point is, this passage says nothing about outward beauty. It talks about inward beauty. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4 say, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Compare, contrast that. The unfading beauty with what we saw earlier, the fleeting beauty. It's the inner beauty. That's what makes a woman truly beautiful. Verse 27, she watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. We've covered that. 28, her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Now to rise up in this context means to rise up and show honor or respect for. Like when a judge comes into a courtroom, the people rise. This used to be common in this country, especially in the South. Anytime any woman entered the room, the men would stand up to show respect and honor. They still do it in the South. They don't do it so much in the Midwest and never did it in California where I grew up. It was a foreign concept. But what a beautiful thing. King Solomon rose up before his mother. First Kings 2.19 speaks of when Bathsheba went to speak to the king And it says, he rose up, same word, and then he bowed down. And then he got a chair and he set it beside him and she sat at the right side of him on the throne. He rose up, he showed honor, he showed respect for his mother. But in verse 28, they do more than just rise up. They rise up, the the husband and the children, and they speak words of blessing. Blessing. In ancient Israel, they didn't celebrate Mother's Day once a year like we do, like we're doing today. They celebrated Mother's Day every week. They did. See, it was part of the traditional Sabbath As they would bring in the Sabbath, the Shabbat. Right before dinner on Friday night, the men and the children would stand and gather around their mother and they would sing the words of this poem, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. They would sing it. They have a name for it, Eshet Kayil. Eshet Kayil means valiant woman, wife of noble character. And so they sing this verse. What a beautiful way to not just rise up, but to, with our mouths, honor and show respect for the mother. And they still they still uh, have this custom in traditional Jewish homes today, Eshet Kayil every Friday. Well, verse 29, many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is, de- is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There's the verse we already talked about. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There is nothing more beautiful than a woman who fears the Lord. This is what true beauty looks like. Inner beauty. I came across a verse just this morning, and I never noticed it before. I, I'm sure I've read it dozens of times, but I never noticed it. Isaiah 33:5 5 says this, the Lord will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And then it says this, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Isn't that beautiful? The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Do you want to be a wife of noble character? Do you want to be a husband who's worthy of such a wife? The fear of the Lord is the key that unlocks this treasure. And we've seen it throughout all of Proverbs. It started in the very beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So. Verse 31, the last verse. It says, give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praises at the city gate. This is our challenge, men. This is our challenge. It's it's time that our wives who are under such attack these days, it's time that they be exalted and honored by their husbands and by their children. And so as we close this this book of Proverbs, this series as we close our service this morning, I want to ask the women to remain seated. And I want to ask the men to stand up. Husbands, dads, single men, fiancés, it doesn't matter. I want to ask the men to stand. Go ahead. There you go. And if you have a, a wife or a daughter or a mother or a grandchild or a fiance or whatever here, I want you to gather around. I want you to lay hands on them and we're gonna pray as we close this out. If you don't have family here, you are still surrounded by your church family and you are loved and we are praying for you too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these women are your daughters. They're made in your image and they're loved by you. God, forgive us as men for when we've not loved them as we should. Forgive us for when we've not honored them and encouraged them in righteousness. Forgive us for when we've expected something other than godliness from them. And for when we have not modeled Christ's likeness for them. God, we pray that you would be their first love. That they would pursue you above all else and that we would support them in that. God, we pray that you would bless them with all the treasures of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And God, we pray that you give them strength and courage to be valiant women, to stand up to the pressures of this world and to live out their faith boldly and beautifully. And God, we thank you for them and we honor them in Jesus' name. Amen.